7 through 15. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Thanks, Sue. All right. John chapter 4, people. Here we go. Such a good passage. It's a I'm excited to jump into it with you. If you have a Bible, uh, open it with me to John chapter 4 or on your device, however you need to get there. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And let me just say welcome to FBC. We're so glad that you're here. It's so good to be in person, to be together. So glad you're with us online uh, just for, for worship. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John that we've been in for some time now. We've called it Come and See because week after week it's just an opportunity to look at Jesus and see who he is. Pastor Lee wrapped up chapter 3 last week for us, so now we're in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it now. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken, that you've made yourself known. You've revealed who you are through your word. And so we pray now that as we come, uh, you would teach us. You would open our hearts. Holy Spirit, you would help us see what you have for us in the passage this morning. Would you do your work? Would you comfort us? Would you convict us where necessary? Uh, would you teach us and guide us? Uh, we love you. We give you this time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, when I was going through the interview process to become uh, lead pastor here at FBC, about four years ago, we came out one particular weekend for a visit. Amber was pregnant with Zoe at the time, and we had a great little weekend visiting with so many of you, and I had a chance to preach one Sunday morning, and I preached from this passage, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And so if, you, if you're new here, or new within the past four years, then you won't remember that Sunday. And if you were here that Sunday, probably forgot most of what I said anyway. So it's going to be good for us all to just return to this passage with fresh eyes and see what Jesus has for us. And just let me say, as, uh, again, as I reflect back on that weekend and on, on getting to, to come here four years ago and, and be lead pastor here, it's been such a joy. Amber and I talked often about uh, how much we love this church, how we love you. I love you, church. It's a joy to be your pastor. I want you to know that, that we consider it such a privilege to call FBC our 
home. Let me also say that if you've learned anything about me over the past few years, you probably know that I like a man by the name of Tim Keller quite a lot. I like to read his books and learn from him. And so I want to start with this uh, compelling quote he has in a book called Making Sense of God, kind of to introduce where we're going this morning. Listen to what he writes. He says, if we stand back to ask what we have learned about happiness over the centuries, it is striking to see our lack of progress. Think of how we have surpassed our ancestors in our ability to travel and communicate, in our accomplishments in medicine and science. Think of how much less brutal and unjust to minorities many societies are today compared with even 100 years ago. In so many ways, human life has been transformed. And yet, though we are unimaginably wealthier and more comfortable than our ancestors, no one is arguing that we are significantly happier than they were. We're all still struggling, seeking happiness in essentially the same ways our forebears did and doing a worse job of it if we use depression, anxiety, suicide as an indicator. Okay, think about that. This makes a good point. We have seen stunning technological advances in practically every area of life, communication, transportation, uh, medicine, science. Think about, again, the cell phone you have in your pocket, FaceTime, video calls. We think of modern medicine, vaccines, quite relevant today, Netflix, DoorDash. Can we talk about DoorDash for a second? With a few presses of buttons on your phone, you can have hot food delivered to your door. Cheeseburgers and fries. You can be sitting on your couch in your jammies, 9 o'clock at night, and want a piece of pie from Nations, and you can, boom, it'll be there in 20 minutes. What in the world? What kind of world is this? Think about that. And yet, okay, amazing technological advances, comforts in life, and yet, finding deep joy, contentment, Happiness in life remains quite elusive. We see anxiety, we see depression, restlessness everywhere here in, in 2021. And so somehow we're not any better than our ancestors were at finding this sort of lasting fulfillment and joy. And so I'd like us to consider this morning if it's possible that Jesus of Nazareth holds the secret, that Jesus himself is the key to fulfillment, to peace, to joy in life? Is it possible that Jesus invites us to receive something from him that we can find nowhere else? We're going to see this play out in John chapter 4. You notice as we started in the first few verses, Jesus is changing location of his ministry for a little bit. There's this minor kerfuffle most likely a little tension because the Jesus movement is gaining popularity and the Pharisees don't like that. The religious leaders of Jesus' day don't like that. There's probably some stirring uh, problems. And so Jesus, verse 3, you see, decides to move back up north to Galilee where things can settle down a little bit. Now in verse 4, we see the first of several striking details about this passage. Verse 4 says what? Now he had to go through Samaria. Now, John, the author of this gospel, adds this little editorial comment. He had to go through Samaria. That's a play on words here. 
because this is partially true. He had to go through Samaria. It was true that the quickest way from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north was a straight line through the region of Samaria. So in one sense, yeah, you had to go through there to get up north. However, if you were a devout Jew, an Orthodox Jew, if you were a a rabbi, a holy man, you would be expected, it would be normal for you not to go through Samaria, to go on the outskirts of town around Samaria so that you would not risk becoming unclean by mingling with the Samaritans, by touching the same things that the Samaritans touched. See, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. If you've read this passage, studied this passage before, you know that that is the case. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. In fact, pure Jews looked down on the Samaritans because they were racially mixed with Gentiles. See, centuries earlier when the Assyrians from the north invaded the northern region and the northern kingdom and settled down there, the Gentile Assyrians intermarried with Jews and thus became the Samaritans, this kind of part Jewish, part Gentile race. Not to mention they had plenty of other disagreements about Scripture, about worship, about where you should worship. And because of this, many Jews, it was bad people, Jews would not eat with Samaritans. They would not eat food that was handled by Samaritans or drink from a cup that belonged to a Samaritan. Sometimes violence would erupt between Jews and Samaritans. Okay, so I think we get the picture here. They were not friendly. They did not go together. And so in one sense, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria at all. Would have been totally normal, expected even, for him to go around the outside of town. But in another sense, he did have to go through Samaria. Why? I love how Pastor Tony Evans puts it. He said, Jesus had an appointment. He had a divine appointment. And she didn't know it yet, but Jesus had scheduled in to his eye calendar, meet with Samaritan woman noon on this day. He had planned by divine appointment this life-changing encounter with this woman. So he had to go through Samaria. It was no accident that this story unfolds the way that it does. Now let's pick it up in verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, so it starts off simple enough, as would often happen with travelers. They're on a long journey. It's hot. They want to settle down. Take a little lunch break. So Jesus and the disciples settle down. Jesus says, let's stop. He sits down outside of town at this well outside of the town of Sychar. But it's not just any well. The text tells us it's Jacob's well. This reference to the Old Testament is a well-known location. It's about noon. So the sun is beating down. He's hot. He's tired. He's thirsty. They're feeling the weight of the desert heat. And it's strange that Jesus would go through Samaria in the first place, right? We just kind of talked about that, how that's not necessarily normal. But the plot thickens here, people. 
It's going to get good, oh baby. Seriously, it's coming. Verse 8 tells us what? The boys head into town. Okay, he's like, go get us some food, disciples. So they go walk into town to buy some food. They probably find a subway because there's a subway on every major interstate. Back then, just like today, they go get a footlong steak fajita sub or veggie delight or turkey or whatever on Italian herbs and cheese bread. They're going to get some footlong subs, bring them back for the boy or for Jesus and the crew, leaving what? Jesus alone by himself at this well when a woman approaches to draw water intriguing. Now, normally, again, more cultural layers here. In the ancient world, again, many of you probably know this, that women would go in groups to draw water. They wouldn't go by themselves. They would go in the cool of the morning or maybe in the late afternoon as the temperature was a little bit uh, nicer and these women would go in groups and they'd talk about essential oils and they'd talk about the Enneagram number that they have and they'd have their, you know, female chatter time. But this woman comes by herself when you would not expect her to come at noon, when she wouldn't have to be around any other women. Makes us wonder why. We don't know quite yet from the text, but we know there's some questionable thing going on here. She's some kind of outcast. She's some uh, kind of a pariah, not wanting to be around the other women, not being allowed to be around the other women, them not liking her. We don't know exactly. Now, to make things even more unusual, okay, again, the plot gets uh, even better. You have to understand it was not proper, it was not proper for a rabbi to engage a woman by himself in conversation. Okay, some Jewish teachers warned their disciples of really talking with uh, women much at all in public. Uh, some would even go as far to say men probably shouldn't even talk to their wives. Wives in the room, maybe that you'd welcome that from time to time, I don't know. But that's kind of uh, a concern for them. But Jesus engages this woman. He talks with her. Verse 7, says, hey, would you give me a drink? Now, think about this then. It was unsavory for a man to talk to a woman alone in public. But this is not just any man, right? This is a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. But not just any Samaritan woman. This is a morally questionable kind of outcast Samaritan woman talking with not just a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, holy man, teacher. The degrees of cultural separation here would be enormous. Enormous. And Jesus engages her anyways. Most rabbis wouldn't risk it, wouldn't want to be questioned, wouldn't want to risk becoming unclean, wouldn't want to deal with the gossip that would result. But Jesus doesn't care. And in one sentence, he blows past a handful of of barriers that we think would keep him away. In one sentence, he pushes those hurdles aside, pushes those fences aside that we would think would keep these two apart. He doesn't care about these cultural divisions, and it reminds us of the simple fact that Jesus will meet you where you are. The barriers aren't going to keep him away. Some of us think that there are these hoops you have to jump through to get to Jesus, as if he's like hiding behind some obstacle course, and you've got to figure out how to get through it, jump through the hoops, move past the fences in order to get close to Jesus, and you wonder, is Jesus, is he willing to draw near to me because I haven't memorized a lot of Bible verses? 
or I, it's awkward for me to pray out loud. I don't want to do it. I don't know what to say. Or I'm kind of new to church. Or I got kind of a messy background. Or I got kind of a messy present life. Or I don't dress right. Or I'm not sure I fit in with the church crowd. Or if, here's the deal. If you think that you are somehow too sinful, too edgy, too damaged, too whatever for Jesus, think again. Jesus meets us where we are. He meets this woman where she is. There's no barrier that kept them apart. Now, here's another reality we got to talk about. Jesus is breaking down these moral, uh, religious barriers that this woman would expect to keep them apart. But notice, he's also breaking down social and racial barriers. We see this in the text. And look from verse 7, how does Jesus engage with this woman? How does he start? Notice he starts with a social gesture, a social statement. Will you give me a drink? So there's this social gesture, this social movement from Jesus in a racially charged environment. May I have a drink? I'm willing to share this cup with you. And you see from how she responded that this was a big deal. He was making a clear statement. Verse 9, what does she say? This is not something that, that our people normally do, right? Jews, Samaritans, we don't normally associate like this, Jesus. What are you doing? And so think about this. Again, here's an application. If we are going to follow Jesus, there will be social implications, Specifically, around the topic of race and ethnicity. Jesus says, let's share a drink together. Now, think about it. Some would say, hey, talking about race in the church is divisive. Let's talk about Jesus. Talk about theology. Ignore the racial uh, issues or tensions in our country. And that might sound spiritual. But that's not actually helpful. And that's not what we see Jesus doing here. Think about it. We need to realize that our, our race, our ethnicity is a part of how we experience the world. Right? It's not the only factor. It's not maybe even the most important factor, but it's an important factor that determines how we experience the world. And clearly by how the woman responds, she sees that Jesus is taking a big step to address that, right? We don't have to go far to, like, to talk about race from this passage. You know, we're not, like, out in left field here pulling at straws just because we want to talk about it. It's, like, it's right in the text that the racial tension is popping off the page in the story, Jews and Samaritans. And so notice that Jesus doesn't just talk theology with her. He doesn't even start with theology, actually, right? Like, he gets there. He's going to talk, talk about living water, He's going to talk about eternal life. He's going to talk about uh, this, this woman's past and her sin. He's going to talk about where to worship. He's going to talk about church. He's going to talk about a lot of things. But he starts with this social step, this gesture towards racial unity. Verse 7, that's what he does. So a simple point for us is we, we cannot ignore racial realities in our world because Jesus didn't ignore them. Jesus knew they were there. He moved against them. 
And so Christians should be leading the way in these sorts of conversations today around racial reconciliation, racial unity, reading together, learning together, listening to one another about this topic. As the story continues, we see that Jesus does more than just ask her for a drink. Right, things develop here. He says, can I have a drink? Verse 7, she says, say what? You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. We don't do that. Here's how he responds. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, so notice what Jesus is doing here. He's taking this physical, tangible reality of thirst, being thirsty, and he uses it to point to a deeper spiritual reality in this woman's life and in our hearts by extension. I mean, think about it. You know what it's like to be thirsty, right? Can you think, just picture a time, picture a time when you were thirsty and like all you wanted in the world was a glass of water. Like you would, you would sell your kidney on the black market to get a glass of water in that moment. Maybe at a soccer practice or you're in like a hot car in your house with no AC and you're just like, I need Water, we know what it's like to be thirsty. And Jesus is using this parallel to say, hey, you are actually thirsty in more ways than you realize. There's a spiritual parallel here. You're thirsty spiritually, and I can offer you what you most desperately need and what you can find nowhere else. Verse 10, he says, what, I can give you living water. And now while he's explaining this, he actually makes another comment about our thirsts and the reality that other sources that we go to to quench our thirst ultimately leave us thirsty again. Right? We all have thirst. We all uh, uh, look for ways to kind of satisfy uh, the deep needs in our soul, the need for love or for achievement or for progress, for belonging, for, for purpose. We have all these thirsts. And Jesus is essentially saying that any other well you drink from, any other well you go to, any other water you use to try to, to satisfy that thirst may temporarily help, but ultimately you'll be thirsty again. Right? Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water or we could have any other water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. You see what he's doing there? I think he's pointing out in a deeper way what's true of the human experience. We hunger and we thirst. We have longings. We go to countless wells to try and satisfy those longings. We run to money. We run to relationships. We run to, to family, to substances, to success, to work. Things that maybe aren't necessarily bad, but we're not designed to be ultimate things. And we try to use them to quench our deep thirst, and it doesn't work. That gets back to the Tim Keller quote that we started with. We're thirsty. 
And we're looking for happiness, and we're still seeking it, and people are having trouble finding it. And so maybe, just maybe, people have been looking in the wrong place. And think about it, we've probably all felt the, the ripple effects of, uh, in our lives when we or when people we know ha- have chased after water to quench their thirst, but it wasn't the right water. If left unchecked, our thirsts, our pursuits, our desires will determine, seriously, the trajectory of our lives. We have no idea most of the time how powerful our thirsts are, the lengths we will go to satisfy them. Think about it. How many relationships, how many relationships have been damaged when someone tried to quench a deep thirst within their souls and they tried to do it with the water of work and achievement. And so they spent long hours with their attention focused on work rather than family, work rather than friendships. They became workaholics, striving for that next promotion, all while neglecting kids, perhaps, spouse, perhaps, church, perhaps, We think how many families have been torn apart when a spouse tried to quench that deep thirst in their souls with love and affection that they didn't feel like they were getting from their current spouse. And so they had to go and try and drink from another well. And if you just did a cost-benefits analysis of a decision like that, it would be crazy to think that chasing after that uh, forbidden person or relationship would be worth it. You do it on paper, pro, cons, it, it would not make any sense. But in the moment, that thirst is so strong, such a driving force for them, it was more important for them to try and quench that thirst in that way. It was more important to do that than to maintain their, their marriage, their family, their relationship with their kids, their reputation, their influence. Think about how many of us have ended up in, in addictions because as we have these thirsts and we try and fill them with different things and we say we need more and we need it now. Our appetites, our desires, our thirsts are more powerful than we realize. And so we could pursue all these things. We could shipwreck our faith. We could shipwreck our family, take our whole life sideways. And guess what? At the end of it, we'll still be thirsty. But Jesus says in verse 14, but if you take the water I have for you, you will never thirst again. Which reminds us of the deep reality of the gospel that Jesus came and he died for us on the cross and he rose again to bring us new life. And through him we can receive what we deeply, deeply need which is what? The forgiveness of our sins through the work of Jesus on the cross, which is a new heart, transformation within, a new identity, being an adopted child of God, a beloved son or daughter of God. This then becomes our new foundation for life, that the the depths of our hearts and the deepest part of our souls were satisfied because we have the love of God, the favor of God, 
and we have his presence within us. So we see that the gospel is not just that, hey, Jesus saves us, but also that he satisfies our hearts. The gospel is not just a transaction, a legal transaction. It is that, but even more than that, Jesus then becomes our treasure. We realize that life with God in his kingdom, knowing him is what it's all about. And it's not that we won't have desires ever again, like we're never going to go on DoorDash and order pie at 10 o'clock at night. We'll probably still do that. We'll still get hungry. We still have a need for community and for relationships and for love and those things. But those things no longer are necessary for ultimate satisfaction because some of those things, those external circumstances, will come and go. And at the end of the day, whether we have those things or not, we can still have the joy, the hope of God in our life. And we can enjoy those things in their proper place, right? It doesn't get twisted and out of order where those things become ultimate things and we have to have them and we'll go to great unhealthy lengths to have them. No, we can still enjoy connection, belonging, love, meaningful work in the world, whatever it might be, just enjoying it in its proper place as God always intended it to be. If we trust in Jesus, those thirsts are met. In verse 4, he says, or 14, there will be within us then a well springing up of eternal life. Water within us that wells up the Spirit of God now present in our hearts. God's presence now within us. There's so much biblical language that uses this imagery of water and life coming to the Lord uh, as, as thirsty people, drinking from him, receiving what only he can provide. And friends, we need this internal transformation. We need the Spirit of God to change our hearts, to to come and dwell within us. I love this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. We've shared it before. She famously said, The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Here's the secret to life, the key to joy, the key to confidence and hope, Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Because if we have this living water that Jesus provides that becomes a well springing up to eternal life within us, we can go into deserts, we can go into valleys, we can go into challenging seasons and be okay. Now, this is the, the central theme of the passage, okay? Jesus offers living water. But there's more here. There's more. We're actually going to spend two more weeks uh, on this passage. And the next, the encounter continues. We'll see them in the next few weeks. But also this morning, one more thing I want us to see is not just that Jesus offers us living water, but who Jesus offers living water to. Let's talk about the woman a little bit more. She doesn't seem to quite understand what Jesus is saying, right? She's still thinking on some natural, earthly level, like water, cup, drink, all that. But verse 15, woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. It's like, cool, you got some special secret water? I'll take it. I can go home and drink it and cook with it. I don't have to come back here to the well. That sounds good. He's like, you're not quite getting what I'm saying, but that's okay. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. All right, the passage takes another turn here. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right about that. (laughs) You're right when you say you have no husband. 18, the fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. 
Again, some say that the quickest way to the heart is through the stomach. Quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Feed him good food. But Jesus knows that the surest way to a heart is actually through a wound. So he brings up this woman's past. And we see that it's a painful past. One with divorce. One with rejection. One with shame. One with sin. Her own, again, morally ambiguous choices. And Jesus brings this up. And I don't think he brings it up to shame her. I think he brings it up to, to tell her, you know what? I already know everything about you. I know it all. I know the divorces you've been through. I know the shame that you carry with you. I know the part you've played in that, the sins that you've committed. I, I know what it's like for you to go in public. I know the tears you've cried behind closed doors. I know what other people think of you. I know it all. And this offer of living water is still for you. This offer to come and drink and receive eternal life, this offer of unending transformation in the Spirit of God present in your heart, it's still on the table. This gift that I have to offer you is not dependent on your moral status, your moral record, your standing in society, what other people have to say about you. I offered this to you moments ago, knowing full well who you are and where you've been and what you've done and what you're caught up in now. I think it's to keep her from saying, well, that sounds great, Jesus, but this probably isn't for me. This whole living water thing couldn't be for me. He says, no, actually it is. I already know. And friends, if we're honest, I think a lot of times we feel like the woman at the well. We feel like the Samaritan woman, like an outsider, like we're unclean, like we're unworthy. Maybe we have a past that we hope people don't find out about. Maybe we're caught up in something right now that you hope people don't ask about. You hope never comes to the light. Maybe you've been told in different ways, you know what, Jesus isn't really for you. Church isn't really for people like you. But even for people like us, Jesus meets us and says, you know what, I already know everything about you. I know where you've been. I know what you're caught up in now. Yeah, we're going to bring that to the light. Yeah, we need to deal with that. Yeah, there needs to be repentance. Yeah, we need to change some things. But I have this living water to offer you where you are right now. Living water, eternal life. So Jesus offers living water, but he offers living water uh, even or especially to people that we would maybe least expect. He had to go through Samaria. He had this appointment with this woman. It was no accident that they met that day at noon alone at that well. This is why I came through Samaria. And so I wonder maybe if this is a moment like that for you. Maybe this is your moment with Jesus at the well and you find yourself here, you find yourself listening in, you're not really entirely sure why and Jesus has set this up as no accident but to say to you, I know you I see you. I know where you've been. I know what you're caught up in now. And I want you to know I have living water to offer you if you would only receive it and come to me. Friends, we're going to take a moment to pray here.
before we, we take communion. As a church family, we're going to have an opportunity to, to celebrate communion, which is a way that we come to Jesus just with empty hands to receive from him, to remember his work on the cross, to remember the gospel, that Jesus died for us, that he rose again to new life, that he offers us forgiveness of sins and new life to whoever would trust in him. So friends, you should have those communion cups there. After we pray, you can get those ready and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But first, would you join me in, in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for the gift of your word. And Jesus, how you, you meet us. You show up in our lives. And it's no accident that you uh, have brought us here this morning to remember who you are and what you've done and what you alone can provide. Lord, we uh, confess that we have pursued other wells and other water to satisfy the thirst in our souls when really you alone are the one who can provide what we need. And so, Jesus, we pray that you forgive us, and we we come with with empty hands to receive, once again, this, this living water, this fullness of life, your spirit, your presence within us, renewing us, cleansing us, guiding us. We thank you, Jesus, and we remember you together. Amen.